good morning. I'm actually going to start with a not-so-nice image, unfortunately. Um, it's kind of impossible, really, to say anything, I feel, from the front without sort of making reference to what we have seen on our television screens over the last few weeks. And um, I I'll be honest, I found it quite a bit difficult um, preparing this morning. Just, And I, I have this horrible habit, and my wife will tell this, that I am terrible at not having some device on in our family, whether it's the television or the radio. Um, it's not always sport that's on. Sometimes it is. Um, but I, I've had the news on sort of sometimes in the background. Um, sometimes I'm mute just because I, I like having things on. It stimulates me. Probably doesn't help half the time, but there you go. Um, but just having the news on the background and just watching the images um, come through from Ukraine and kind of everything that's going on. And just, I know as many people here, just my heart has been mourning over these past few weeks. It's just what we've seen and just the horror of it all. And just kind of that question of kind of why can something this happen? And, you know, almost going to God, you know, why is this happening? What is going on? What, what, what can we do about it? And I've been reflecting on it. And the two words that have really sort of been on my heart is, is the words of hope and justice. And hope is kind of what most of my talk this morning is on, which is great. But I just want to start with this idea of justice, because in this series we're looking at in Isaiah, this idea of justice is a theme that runs throughout it. Um, Jenny kind of very briefly hinted about um, this idea of justice last week. And the Hebrew word for justice, and I'm probably pronouncing this completely wrong, is um, mispat. Um, but it, the Hello? I'm on. Good. Went off for a second. Sorry, I've got a loud voice. I'll shout. Most of you can hear me. Um, this idea of restorative justice, that it's more than just about doing things right, about being a good person. It's an active thing. It's, it's about seeking out vulnerable people who are experiencing injustice and working to correct it. It's about advocating for the oppressed, striving to change social structures that foster injustice. We see this modelled in the New Testament with Jesus and the early church. This idea that they wanted to bring in a new world. Wanting to see heaven come to earth. And as Jesus follows, we need to look for this idea of restorative justice, where we can correct one wrongdoings, where we can give voices to the oppressed and condemn injustice. And one thing that did really encourage me this week, and I'm sure it encouraged many of you, I know some people are included in these numbers, is the amount of people... Um, when that website went live to sign up to um, say that, yeah, you're willing to open your homes up to refugees. The numbers that influxed almost immediately. And I'll be honest, over the past few years, there are times when I have questioned this country and some of our, our thoughts and our opinions and all the rest. But that actually was a real encouragement that there are thousands upon thousands of people in this country saying, no, we want to do something. We want to have some sort of restorative justice where we can actually see things be right. And I just want to commend, I know there's a few people in this room this morning that have put their names down for this. And I think that's just the most amazing and wonderful thing to say, we're going to open our homes to people who no longer have a home. And actually, to me, what speaks more about the gospel than something like that? But still reflecting on just kind of the horrors of what's going on, I was actually reading um, something this morning. I was up rather early. And this, it came up on Facebook. It was a part of a longer post, which I won't go into. But I came across this quote from a doctor in Iraq 19 years ago, nearly to the day when the bombings of Iraq started, which, unfortunately, we were one of the countries responsible for that. And this is what he said. Violence is for a world that has lost its imagination. And my title this morning of this talk is Imagine. 
Do we dare imagine a world where things like this do no longer happen? Do we dare imagine a world where wars and terror no longer are there? I noticed um, over the past month or so that I've heard a song a few times on the radio and television of John Lennon's famous song, Imagine. I may have stolen for the title of this talk. In the song, he dares to dream of a world where lives are lived in peace and harmony with each other. And it's a wonderful sentiment. But the song misses something fundamentally crucial in his imagination. In his opening line, imagine there's no heaven. The concept that without heaven, without God, the world will be a better, happier, more harmonious place. This idea that religion is really the fault of the world. It's religion is the, you know, that's where all the wars come from. It's something... Hello? Oh, this is interesting. Um, that religion are behind so much of sort of all the horrors in the world. And religion definitely has a lot to answer for. But why? Because of us. Because of humanity. You know, we started this morning talking about the idea of perfection, that God is perfect, but we are not. As with everything we see on the news, read in our history books, we're reminded how we fall short, how sin has corrupted, where money, power, possessions... They get in the way of doing what is right. Last week, we began this um, series on the servant songs in Isaiah. Jenny spoke about in that first song, it came off the back of a warning about idols. Idols corrupt us. There's this corruption that we see throughout the Bible. Much of the Old Testament is full of people being corrupted time and again and losing their focus on who they are and what they've called to be. Up until this point in Isaiah and the Old Testament, that is what we have seen as the repeating theme. Right back in the beginning with Adam and Eve eating the forbidden fruit. Cain and Abel, the first sons, brothers, one killing the other. Noah and the flood. Jacob deceiving his brother Esau and his sons selling their brother into slavery. And then the Egyptians, when they are brought out of slavery in Egypt, disobeying God, making their own idols, not trusting on who God was and what he had promised them. It wasn't that long ago we were going through the series in Judges and looking at that downward spiral of people when they had finally settled in the promised land, when they had finally got to the place that God had promised them. Yet this level of corruption continues. And after them, you have the kings of Saul and David and Solomon. And it's a time of prosperity for Israel. But yet the people, and most sinfully as kings, still fall short, whether it's through power, money, and women, and a lot of women when it comes to Solomon. Israel was stubborn in her ways. We're going to look at Isaiah um, chapter 49 this morning. But in chapter 48, Isaiah speaks against this stubbornness. About the fact that no matter what seemed to happen, Israel seemed to be set in her ways of falling short of what God had called for them. So as we pick up in the beginning of Isaiah chapter 9 verse 1, it starts with the word, listen. And that's what I really want us to do this morning, is to listen to what Isaiah has got to say. So we're going to look at Isaiah um, chapter 1, the first seven verses. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my birth, he has made mention of my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand he hid me. 
He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. But I said, I have labored to no purpose. I have spent my strength in vain and for nothing. Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. He says, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant and restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel, of whom was despised and abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers, kings will see and rise up. Princes will see and bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. It's a great, great passage. And there's loads to get into. We're just going to pack a little bit this morning. But it starts with this sense of listen. The servant song here, the servant is speaking directly to those who were not part of Israel. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. And why is this significant? It's a reminder to the people of Israel of ultimately their calling. See, it was never just to be that they were to be God's people in a land, and that was it. That was just the beginning. That was just the start. They were called to encounter God, to to be in the presence of God, to receive the blessing of God, so they then could go to the nations and be a blessing. All the way back to Abraham when he's called, you were called to be blessed, to be a blessing. See, Isaiah, um, Jenny mentioned last week, his ministry spanned over 60 years and four kings that came a bit after Solomon. He's also a contemporary of the prophet Micah. And by the time these two prophets are speaking to the nation of Israel, there is actually no real nation of Israel. Judah is all that remains. Ten of the nations have, have, have gone. They've been taken over by the Syrians and the Assyrians and all the sort of wars that were going on around at the time. These ten, these ten peoples have been taken away, never really to be heard of again. The only real idea we get of them is in the New Testament when you hear of people like the Samaritans. They're some of these peoples that had been sort of scattered and intermarried. And then the sort of the disappointment. So in Acts, when people, the 3,000 are gathered hearing um, at Pentecost, you've got people from all around the world coming. There's an idea that these are some people who are returning to Israel. But as a nation, they're never fully restored. These people have been lost through their disobedience. Most of Isaiah and of all his life is before the exile. And he's speaking to people, warning about what is to come. He's seeing the destruction around them as forces are gathering around them and warning them, because of your injustice, exile is coming. And exile was such a big deal for them because that meant the removal of them from the presence of God. Removal for the temple where they encountered God. Exile just wasn't not being in the land. It was a removal from who they were as a people. They were the people who were meant to be with God. And if they were removed from there, they were no longer those people. 
And Isaiah implores them to turn from their ways, as do so many of the prophets in the Old Testament. He warns them because of their injustice, this is what's going to happen. But in the first half of Isaiah, you also get this idea of hope. That yes, Israel's rebellion will come at a cost, but there is hope still that there will be a fulfillment of God's covenant promises. And then the second part of Isaiah is written with the future in mind. And this, to me, is one of the most fascinating ideas about where prophecy comes in. It's written to a people post-exile, before the exile even happens. It imagines a world that's not yet in place. Despite knowing what was coming, despite seeing the disobedient and injustice around them, despite knowing destruction was upon them, Isaiah begins to look forward. Yes, we still encounter an Israel that's rebellious, but we're introduced to this servant of the Lord who was going to do what the people could not. And Jenny asked the question last week, well, who is this servant of the Lord? And I did say to her last week, you've kind of given the game away already because you mentioned Jesus' name. And it's kind of the elephant in the room when you're reading this. We all read this and go, well, it's Jesus. And of course it's Jesus. But I want to stop you there for a minute. Before we just go, it's Jesus, and we go, oh, we know what that means, and we know what ought to come. Let's listen to what Isaiah has to say. Because he doesn't name the person. It's just the servant of the Lord. Let's listen to what he has to say about this servant. Let's not assume things before they're there. Because the miracle of the Old Testament is, is they look back at all these prophecies and start to realize, oh, Jesus did that, and oh, Jesus said that, and they, they put it all together. And it, it, for them, it's a slow revelation. For us, we can kind of miss that because we just kind of, well, we know how it ends. We know all that happens. But let's listen to what he's got to say. In verse 2, he made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. It's not a physical weapon a servant has, but his mouth, his words, the word of God. It is through what the servant will say that this restoration and renewal will take place. This image of sword and arrow illustrate that the accuracy and penetrating power of the servant's prophetic words. His words will not miss their target. And words can be powerful. Whereas in, the, in what we looked at last week, we get more this idea of this spirit-filled king. Here, we're getting someone that sounds more like a prophet. And in in preparing this, I came across this quote about this idea of prophecy that I just thought really opened up for me. It said, This kind of prophecy transforms the known world or present state of things into a situation that at the time of writing is yet only imagined. Isaiah dared to dream and imagine a world where things would be put right. And who would do it? In verse 3, he said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. See, in biblical Hebrew, a name is significant. It's not just to tell you where someone is or who someone is. It reveals part of who they are, their calling. Isaiah himself, his name means Yahweh is salvation. Isaiah, in fact, named his own sons according to what was going on at the time. 
In verse 3, the servant is identified as Israel, the name given to Jacob, the one who wrestled with God, who be- that became the name of the nation. They were meant to be the one through whom God's splendor was displayed. But then there's something curious happens, because then in verse 5, it says that this servant is going to bring Jacob back and gather him to himself, Israel. So the servant is both Israel and somehow going to restore Israel. The servant is going to be the embodiment of what Israel was always called to be. Called to be the nation as a servant. The people who would be made a covenant with them in order that they, as a kingdom of priests, should minister to the world. The nation failed. The people were called as witnesses, his prophets, but they were deaf and blind to what God was doing among them. But God's purposes are kept alive through another servant who is all that Israel should be and through whom Israel will be restored. But we also get a glimpse of what kind of servant this will be. In verse 4, But I said, I have labored to no purpose. I have spent my strength in vain and for nothing. Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. You almost get a sense that this is sort of a pre-echo of Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane. I've given everything I can, there's no more. Yet God, your will, this is about you. And then the crux of it in verse 6. It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. God had appointed his servant to bring Israel to restoration and renewal that would enable the nation to fulfill her divine calling to reveal God's glory to the nations of the world. He's going to restore Israel to be a light to the nations, to be all that Israel was intended to be. N.T. Wright says it like this, the call of Israel has its fundamental objective, the rescue and restoration of the entire creation. So here we are given the servant's identity, an individual, a prophetic figure, one in which we look to and imagine a new world. And then if we jump ahead a little bit into the New Testament, we start to see what this will really look like. We look in um, Luke chapter 2. There's this fascinating, really small story that we often miss whenever Christmas comes around, even though Jesus is only eight days old. It's one we never really look at, but clues us in into what Jesus, who Jesus is and what he's called to be. We're introduced to Simeon, who at this point is an old man, and there's one promise he's had on his life, that before he dies, he will meet the promised Messiah. That's it. He's going to meet him. He waits around his whole life. And he's at the temple. And Mary and Joseph bring this eight-day-old boy. And he sees him. And this is what he says. Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. 
Jesus has come as this servant to fulfill that call, to be that light to the Gentiles. Jesus himself starts to recognize that. When a couple of chapters later in Luke, in Luke chapter 4, he quotes Isaiah himself as he starts to, he recognizes and highlights that disconnect between God and his people. But he reminds them that God will bring them through. We look at um, Luke chapter 4, verses 17 on to 21. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. That's Jesus. Unrolling it, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. Oh, I wish I was there. That would just be like a mic drop moment. <laughs> the eyes of everyone on the synagogue were fastened on him. He's gone and sat down. They're still all on him. He began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Throughout Isaiah, you get this idea of this servant of the Lord, this promised messianic king who's also somehow a prophet, who we're going to look later has other callings on him. And I might touch on them, but I'm trying not to stand on other people's toes too much. Jesus says, I'm here. It's me. But in verse 7, in Isaiah, we get a hint of what is to come. This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel, to him who was despised and abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers. He will be despised. We get a hint of what is to come for Jesus. Yes, he is going to be this great prophet who speaks amazing things, who starts to speak about heaven coming to earth and imagining this new world. But he's also going to be despised because of it. Despised by the very people who ultimately should have realized who he was more than any others. They will hand him over to be killed. Yet it's in that act and rising again that renewal is fully achieved. So we know who the servant is. So where does that leave us? Well, if you jump ahead a bit to Acts chapter 13, this is what Luke says. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. We've really got here the story of the entire Bible. From the beginning, we have Adam and Eve right at the outset and corruption. Their sons commit murder. Well, one of them does. And we see a downward spiral from there of people time and again putting idols up, failing to live up to their calling from God. And Isaiah here saying, there is one to come who is going to do all of that, 
who's going to fulfill the calling that was put on a nation, he will do it himself. And he will renew this nation. He will bring them back into the fold. It will lead to his death. But actually in that, we will see a full restoration, a full renewal. And so therefore he makes us the light to the Gentiles, that we can bring salvation to the end of the earth. Jesus has done it. So now he says, church, over to you. And I kind of feel like I should sit down at that point. Over to you. You are now called to be the light to the Gentiles. And we say Gentiles, all we mean is all those who are not part of the family of God at the moment. All those who weren't originally part of it, they are now called to be part of it. And we have that commission to go and bring them in. To go and speak this word so that we can help them imagine a new world. That's the calling on us. So my challenge this morning is, do we believe it? Do we really believe that? I'm going to take you back for a minute to um, when I was about 12 years old. I can't remember this properly. And I brought my first ever CDs. I'm glad we've got people who are, some people who are older than me, so I don't have to explain what a CD is. I realize if I ever use this illustration in the future, I might have to. I brought two CDs. They were both by DC Talk. Does anyone even know who they are? <laughs> There's uh, three dots of sort of giggles here. It was um, the album Free at Last and Jesus Freak. I, I, I still remember this day, which is quite worrying. They were great albums. I don't really listen to much anymore. I should do. But on one of the albums, at the beginning of the song, there is a quote by Brendan Manning, which has stuck with me for so many years. And kind of, yeah, I'm, just, I'm going to read it out to you and just let it sit for a minute. It says... The greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. We have the good news. We have the message. We have the answer. But do we really believe it? When we walk out those doors this morning, or this afternoon by the time we get there, that's the problem with the time we'd have church. It kind of covers both, doesn't it? Are we actually going to go and live it? Are we going to speak it, or actually are we going to go and live it as well? When John Lennon imagined a world without borders, he imagined a world where people don't hold on to possessions where the world would be shared, where no one would go hungry. It almost sounds like the visions you get in the New Testament, where people coming together and sharing everything. But there was one crucial thing he was missing, the servant, the one who would display God's splendor, the one who would bring salvation to the ends of the earth. It's in Jesus this true imagination finds beauty and splendor majesty. It's in Jesus. I was thinking just this week, um, I chat to a few friends um, in a group where a few of us uh, meet together um, now and then. And one of the things we do is we have a WhatsApp group and we read the Bible together. 
and um, we read one chapter a day um, during the week, and each of us take it in turns just to reflect on kind of what we've read. And we've done this for a few years, and it's quite fascinating to get different people's insights into, um, into what's been said. And um, we started actually in Revelation, which is an interesting place to start a Bible reading plan in Revelation. And uh, there was an awful lot of, I have absolutely no idea what's going on. This makes absolutely no sense. It is absolutely just like bonkers. And then we started, we went back a bit. We thought, Let, let's take it back. And we did a lot of the earlier sort of letters in the, in the New Testament. And then we went and did the Gospels. We, we've basically done the Bible in reverse, now reflecting on it. I hadn't realized that. And then we were like, well, we've pretty much covered the, the New Testament. What do we do now? We're going to go to the Old Testament. I was really excited by this. I'm not going to name names because they may be in the building. Um, but one or two people were not as excited by this because as we've seen lots, there's a lot of stuff in the Old Testament that is really difficult, is, is challenging, is, yeah, it's just not nice always. And actually, we sometimes get really afraid of it. But actually, to me, I love the Old Testament because to me, it makes the New Testament so much more alive. It makes it all of a sudden realize what is going on. When Jesus says stuff, when he says to them, you know, this has come true today. He's saying, remember everything that's come. Remember all that. When we look at Isaiah and what he's got to say here about this servant, we get a greater in-depth of understanding what was Jesus coming? What was he all about? To imagine this new world where one day there would be no more pain. There would be no more suffering. And we're invited in to say, imagine. Imagine that world together. But actually, we don't need to imagine it because we're promised it here and now. We are promised heaven on earth. And so that is kind of what I want to leave you with this morning, is actually, what does that look like for us? What does that look like when we walk out of this place? What does heaven on earth really mean? That's a big question. It's something I've even left as a question for life groups when they meet again this week. Yes. What does that really look like? Um, can I ask the um, band to come back up just as we um, start to finish? Revelation does have that promise that one day there will be no more tears. There will be no more suffering. There will be no more hunger or thirst. There will be no more war. There will be no more borders or boundaries. We will be one people before Jesus. It's a fantastic image. And actually what I think we need to do this morning in response is we raise our voices and sing. We declare that Jesus is God, that he is this servant that has come. He has won that victory for us. He has brought this restoration and renewal. We get to celebrate together that we can enter into the promise of God. We can enter into his presence. We can do that together. And we were reflecting this morning, preparing for the service, just how wonderful it's been these past few weeks as people are, are more here and voices are louder. It just it feels so right that church is somehow more back together. But actually, it really starts when we leave those doors. Because it's wonderful being back together. But our calling is not to this building and this place. Our calling is to the world, to the nations, to the islands. So as we leave this morning, let's not leave Jesus at the door.
Let's take this freedom, take this blessing with us. We are blessed to be a blessing. And we don't need to imagine. We've got Jesus. He is the good news. And we're the ones that get to tell it. So when we're going back, if we're going to Acom or Shipton or Dunnington or wherever you are, or wherever you're called to be, let's make sure we take Jesus with us. Amen.